Dive into the world of dance at the Victorian College of the Arts. Their program offers a unique blend of artistry, performance, and choreographic practice within an inclusive environment. As an undergraduate student, you explore contemporary dance, physical theatre, ballet, urban dance, and more in a collaborative studio lab setting. At honors level, specialize in performance skills, choreographic practice, or dance research. Plus, benefit from the proximity of local choreographers and companies, including Philip Adams, Stephanie Lay Company, Lucy Guerin, Chunky Move, and Dance House. Through professional placements, their students have the opportunity to develop pathways for their future careers through these relationships and networks. Consider a variety of bachelor, masters, and even doctorate programs available according to your needs. Join them and unleash your artistic potential at the Victorian College of the Arts. Learn more through the link in the descriptions below. So this is when,、um, if, if we have that, then probably we will not end up with armchair dance researchers who are writing about dance by copying templates of、uh, analysis from other people, or other group, and putting their cases into that template like cookie cutter. And then stand aloof and say, "Wow, I have achieved that." Hello, and welcome to the Background Dancer. I'm your host, Jason Yap. Thank you for joining me with our community of passionate dance contributors from around the world and across different fields. In this weekly podcast, I offer educational conversations. And insightful tips to help you better understand all things offstage about this curious art form. For this episode, I speak to Dr. Muhammad Anis, Managing Director of the Nusantara Performing Arts Research Centre. An adjunct professor at the Sunway University in Malaysia, and we discussed about the importance of research and academic rigor within dance education. Hello, Dr. Anis. A warm welcome to the background dancer. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for inviting me. A great pleasure to be here. Well, it's such a pleasure to have someone like you on the show because, as a young dancer from Malaysia, there are not many people that we look up to who have really done the work, who have put in the years of experience, you know, in in a place like Malaysia that has long history of arts and dance. And you are definitely one of them. Even my predecessors, my teachers, all look up to you. So <laughs> it, it's it's quite an intergenerational coming together right here, right now. And I'm so excited to talk about. What you have invested most of your life in, which is dance education,、um, more specifically from the academic perspective, right, as a research fellow. So, to begin everything, walk us through a little bit of how you got into academics in dance to become the researcher that you are right now. <laughs>uh, it is uh, one word that describes it best is is it was accidental.、Uh, it was not planned. It was not.、Um, You know, I didn't have、uh, I didn't have the the set of mind then because when I grew up、uh, at the time Malaysia、uh, was just struggling to be、uh, to be a developing 
country. And the focus was on things about economies, things about technologies, things about education in terms of the global education. And uh, when you talk about the education in the arts and more so in the performing arts, these are really a rarities. Uh, I mean, there was no concept and perception that uh, dance education, a music education, theater and whatnot could become mainstream. Then when I went to the university, I ended up doing completely something which is meant which was meant to pursue my dream career towards uh, becoming a diplomat or a lawyer, you know. But it was in University of Malaya that I met my mentor, uh, the late Christian Jit. And it was Christian who actually interrogated me, for lack of a better word, in interrogating me to make me um, very curious and extremely investigative. So the dialogics then was not really a top-down dialogic between him and I. It was really a dialogic of a camaraderie, a context of content, a content of context. So the idea of reading for him was not meant to, to throw it back to him, but to uh, kind of repose questions to him. And then he was actively engaged in theater, as you know. So I was really interested then saying, oh my God, this is completely new. And I was very active in the university dance ensemble. It was a voluntary ensemble, but the, the best in the country then. And we're talking about in the 70s, okay? So it was the best in the country. And we had the best of teachers who were uh, seconded or brought in from the national uh, uh, national company, you know, they, they were next door to us in terms of distance. So those great teachers or mentors came to campus and taught us. And it was amongst the group of us whom they recognized as being talented, inquisitive, you know, disciplined, all that. And I was, uh, I was put in charge of the ensemble when I was in second year, which is rare because in University of Malaya, you cannot be at uh, ensemble leader until you are in the final year. So I took up that task and I was given, again, jobs or assistantship by the great mentors to help them teach, which was, I guess, the most valuable training I had because by doing that, I was able to go to their homes to learn ahead before I come to campus to teach my friends. So that very personal connectivity uh, drove something into me that I never had before. Uh, that I, I appreciated, I began to appreciate uh, dance and music from a completely different spe- perspective, not just for the joy of performance anymore. It was uh, also uh, questioning a lot of things. I was questioning things like, okay, I'm a Malay, a privileged guy in this country because then you have the affirmative action plan that privileged the indigenous and I was uh, I, I grew up in a multicultural state in Penang, and I spoke I spoke Hokkien. Was young, had Hokkien neighborhoods and neighbors. I went to English school. I had a completely different mindset. So, uh, being put into that mainstream, that invented mainstreaming, a uh, post nineteen seventies. You know, I, I had my I had a tug of war in my in my own soul, in my own opinion, but there was no way of expressing it. When I met, only when I met my mentors, we were able to have these very personal exchanges, very, very deep, intimate discussions. And, um, and they agree with me that I, I asked this question. I said, why are we privileging just us? What about the rest? What about those in this and that, you know? 
And their, their, their answer was quite typical then. They said, well, we are salaried workers. We have to respond to what the department says, but not that we can't do it. We could do other things. Say, hey, why don't you do that? So then that was a time when my, a few of my mentors, um, master teachers, start, uh, began to do explorative work that they couldn't do themselves in their own department. So, for example, he said, let's do, that was the first time I heard about exploration. I <laughs> uh, said, let's explore. Let's imagine. So they have metaphors for us to, to work around using techniques that we know. Nothing, nothing fancy. So the techniques are very grounded, very narrow, you know, the kind of typical traditional techniques, you know. And once in a while, they say, do something else than that. Do the jumps, do the leap. It was very awkward, you know. I mean, in the tradition, there's no jumping and leaping. But because we were in this very conducive environment, yeah, uh, we were able to really do funny things in the sense. And then what happened was, there were pieces created together that we would showcase uh, as an interlude to the traditional repertoires. So that was when I met Marin de Cruz, and Marin and I, we uh, began to do modern work together, and we end up going abroad. I went to Hawaii to pursue my studies um, in uh, dance ethnology in music department, and she went to New York to do Graham, you know. So it was her in New York doing Graham. I was in Hawaii, and we met one summer in New York. Uh, to be able to do a lot of exchanges. I was there doing another course in New York, and that really uh, brought the seeds of my multicultural perspective to the point of no return, to the point of no return in the sense that I said, you know, I'm not going to bullshit about this. You know, there is this a tradition that we have to keep and perpetuate, but there's also the experimentation that we have to do because we are not one. This is not a monolithic, homogeneous state or country. We are pretending maybe, but it's not. That was the beginning of many things when we started to do stuff quite different. Came back to Malaysia, was appointed as a young lecturer. I managed to teach courses that I created for the first time out of the box from the humanities and social sciences. That was the beginning journey. Then Krishna, I worked very hard towards it. And later on, I... Uh, who, uh, continued my studies. Um, I did a double PhD in University of Michigan, and that's how I end up uh, dealing with performative theories and critical theories and all the stuff that comes along with ethnomusicology and stuff like that. And that was when I came back from the US and I said to myself, okay, am I going to be just like anyone else or am I going to be quite different? So I said, we have to be quite different because we don't have a performing arts school at all. There was none. There was no, no universities, nothing had anything to do with the performing arts. Eventually, the Ministry of Culture invited me to design the curriculum for the first arts academy in this country, uh, which is now called Aswara or the Academy for Arts and Heritage. You know, But it was the beginning of the time when we invented a curriculum that actually embodies my my dream, the whole sense of me saying that we can't go on a single trajectory. We have to be really multiple trajectories. So, so what I did was I brought my experience from Hawaii at the East-West meeting and the New York uh, experience and the Michigan experience. And I said, okay, I look around, example from neighboring countries, Thailand, Indonesia, Philippines, these three countries I look at very closely and I find none of them could suit us because 
one, Thailand never had any colonial experience. Uh, Indonesia went through a revolution, so they were very much, very strong towards affirming the identity of an independent state. The Philippines uh, had 300 years of Spanish control and 50 years of uh, Americans, so they were very, very modern and Western in one way, so I couldn't fit it. So what I did was I put together young scholars, young people, who are now great people, who are wonderful people. We, we form a team and we develop the curriculum for the dance precisely because I was a dance major and a music minor. And then while doing that, and I also realized that nothing can stay and nothing can be referred, referred without referrals. And I realized that there need to be a huge corpus of published work. Anyway, so that's how I went from a performer, a young performer, mm. to to um, a, a kind of ever you know um, an avant garde freelancer, uh, <laughs> and the established established norm to what it is. So that journey is actually very interesting. So I say it's all accidental; it was not planned. But I, mm. I'm very thankful and grateful that it happened that way. Really. Hey, Jason here with a special message for you to help and continue serving our beloved performing arts community. So here's what you can do. Share this with one person you believe with this episode can benefit and attach a personal note explaining why. This way, you are not only helping me grow this show, but also adding value to those you truly care about. Massive appreciation as it means the world to me and let's get right back to the show. I mean, most beautiful journeys and processes kind of happen accidentally, right? Like, and as you were speaking, I was thinking that, wow, I just submitted my application for the Christian JIT Fund. And another guest that we've already had on the show is one of your students as well in uh, Professor Joseph. Gonzalez. So all these things, different streams of the river, kind of confluence, right? They all kind of meet at a very, very beautiful point there. And as you were speaking, I was also thinking about, wow, the specifics of becoming a research fellow or researcher in dances actually not as simple. In fact, it's quite complicated in certain ways because <laughs> you have to have the curiosity, first of all, and then you have to go through institutional education, institutional framework, institutional training. So in your eyes, who do you think dance research is most suitable for? Well, you know, to be, to be fair and to be honest, uh, it is suitable for anyone who have an interest who are curious about dance. You know, I, I don't believe the fact that scholarly work are meant for scholars, you know, and uh, critical analysis are meant for readers, you know, and performances are meant for viewers. I don't think that's the case. I think most importantly is how we go about producing the corpus of knowledge. And that corpus of knowledge should be able to outreach to all levels, especially in, the, in, in Malaysia right now. Because if you're looking from the generic structure, then we're looking at uh, ethnographical work, historical studies, you know, performative studies, you know. But people outside of Malaysia doesn't realize that um, there is a cosmogony of so many things in Malaysia. I mean, within the context of indigeneity, 
uh, there are multiple facets of indigeneity in this country. There are the more privileged indigenous than the, the others. That's another issue. Then there's again the whole issue today that we talk about uh, the bystanders or the visitors, the pendatang context, which I really mm -hmm. abhor, you know, because oh, the whole becomes so political. So to me, how do you break this? You have, I think the best way to break is to break this, this, this blocks and this, this created kind of um, constraints is to enable people just to enjoy dance, either as uh, something they view or they watch or something they could read, something that is short and satisfying or something that is lengthy and deep. The options are many. And that's why we are, we are quite good in Malaysia now. We have younger scholars, you know, people you mentioned, uh, you know, who are really working hard to do things on whatever their interest is. And that is the most important thing to me. There is no procedural standard operative here. And uh, I would love to see, for example, more works that is uh, that are focused on uh, practice as research rather than just a research-based work, which is very conventional. Um, and I'm, I'm keen to see how this is happening. I have students who have produced their thesis and their master's um, dissertation on, on the context of Chinese Malaysian dance or Indian Malaysian dance, but with a caveat, you know, who are these Chinese or Indian? Mm. Uh, they cannot have a nomenclature of a particular generic race. We are not. There is no genericity here, okay? I mean, amongst us, <laughs> the Malays too, there's no such thing as generic Malay. What nonsense we are talking about? So it is that <laughs> to me, <laughs> it is that to me when we, we say who, which is suitable, the, I think the, the, the answer is create the most number of stuff mm. for people to read, enjoy, watch, and, and consume. It means you're doing a good job. <laughs> it means you're uncovering uh, rabbit holes that people have not possibly dug, mm. dug up yet, right? Like, uh, no, and, uh, yeah, I, no but, well, I don't know about a good job. I, I don't know about a good job, but I think it's very frustrating. It can get very depressing. When, when, you know, when, when, for example, I would see young, younger students in the university, we have so many universities that have performing arts now, you know, and, and the problem with them in dance education is, uh, uh, they are being taught to dance better, but they are not taught to dance intellectually. That's a problem, right? So you, you have people who are talented, who can jump you know, very high, leap the furthest, you know, and, and have all the techniques, but they just are not equipped for the industry. And they just can't. Because they, it, sometimes people forget, you know, that the Malaysian diaspora uh, is bigger than the ones here. I mean, students in Taiwan alone, they're about 300 plus uh, Malaysians. So I go, I go to teach in Taiwan, in Taiwan, you know, I mean, I find this number of students in the arts, performing arts, visual arts, all that, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Korea, China, yep. and, and they've gone, you know, and, and they never come back, of course. So if they ever they come back, then uh, that's a challenge for the local breed one because they are, as I said, you know, they are in the cloistered environment. And how do you break that cloister? And that's very depressing, isn't it? So because mm. uh, they, it, it's not because there aren't enough material for readings, there aren't enough material for references, but they aren't reading or they aren't referring. They are quoting like the old tradition of their Mahaguru, the great sage, you know, so they quote their teachers, you know, and, and, and that's it. And, and they didn't realize that the teachers are smarter 
than them because they had two hours advance of reading the material before he or she lectures it to them. So their whole cycle can become very depressing. But I wish and I hope, <laughs> you know, as, as, as things are today, I can see a lot of work coming out. Yeah, I, as mm-hmm. you know, it is, it is interesting to see a span of 40 years and what has happened from nothing into something. And to me, that would be the most rewarding uh, experience apart from being depressed for what I can't see and preach right now, you know. So you already brought up a little bit about intellectual rigor. And this is a topic that I have come across a number of times in my own journey as well, right? Like, firstly, what is the importance of intellectual rigor within dance? And this has been documented across a number of decades. And then secondly, the deeper level of that is to engage in academic research and all of its tools, all of its, uh, I wouldn't say frameworks of, you know, and, and being coming from a psychological background myself, I have done ample research in that manner, right? It's not like practices research. It's a very scientific, you know, empirical based type of research. What do you think is the importance of following this method and engaging in academic research for dance? Because as you know, dancers don't like to study, dancers don't like to read, <laughs> dancers don't like to engage in scientific, let's say, empirical-based research. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that is going to be a nightmare for quite a while to go, you know, because uh, changing their mindset of younger dancers who are astonished at what their bodies can do, you know, is it, something that you can't avoid. And uh, finding that they can do vigorous technical expose to them uh is means means uh, which means better or of, of a better uh, uh, what you call it um fundamentally is is more important to them uh, but you are right when we talk about intellectual rigor the context of it is always when you see any work that they produce either you are able producing a traditional reenactment or a complete invention you know, either way, uh, how much of thoughts went into it and how much of chance experience went into it, you know. Uh, as one says, uh, given a studio space, the dancers uh, are already put in their heavenly space that they can work any way they want. But uh, the idea of chancing upon something uh, doesn't really bring about intellectual discourse to them. I mean, the, pre- the, the context of thinking and working rather than moving and capturing. These are the two things that's happening. Uh, creating works by, by improvise, improvising through improvisation and catching that moment. Uh, it it produces a product, but it doesn't bring longevity to the producer, the creator, the maker, the choreographer, because it's so fleeting, right? It's so ephemeral. And, uh, in, in the critical theory, the moment as, as a performance is staged, the author is dead because um, uh, you, you as an author, creator, choreographer can have your demand and power uh, as the work progresses towards a product. But once a product is staged, uh, you are being just mentioned as a choreographer or whatever you are, but you are no longer there, you know, and the work will evolve if it's being liked by many. So this kind of um, intellectual discourses uh, has to be thought of because we find here in Malaysia, uh, the uh, <laughs> the lifespan of a dancer uh, as a career is relatively very short, you know, you, because the industry doesn't support it. 
and therefore the dance person has to always mark or market or create niches, which is crazy. You know, it's almost chasing it, chasing it, you know, because the industry doesn't provide it. But if you think ahead, if you could think ahead, for example, if they took a look into, into the trend of um, uh, artificial intelligence and education 4.0 as an issue and, and embrace that in the context of their work, in the context of their writing, in the context of the investigation, that would take in about another half, uh, uh, maybe 50, 60 years from now, it's going to be valid. So this is when I think um, in terms of um, the encouragement to, give, to, to be perpetuated amongst dance maker, dance, younger dance scholars is uh, to break this, 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 this monotonous or almost uh, stereotype that if a dance is, uh, if the person is a dance researcher, then he is a bookish nerdy person, you know, he, I mean, it's just surprising. <laughs> so people to say, wow, that, that, that author of that text can actually dance. It's almost like what? You know, and then again, there's a question, there's a break that is this between, you know, uh, that a person who is a practice, a practitioner, uh, should be different, uh, from a person who is a researcher or a writer. And this is not, uh, the case in other parts of the world. Only us. We, we, we inherited the, 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 the British, um, uh, system of education. Good, I must say, but there are, weaknesses there and then we then we invented we means our forefathers our older people invented the new trajectories for national unity and all that that again uh, brought a lot of problems to us to to locate or to give chances or to provide the avenue for a multiple rhizomic development rather than that that single or double tracking that is being put forth I, I don't want to render too much from it but I'm just being careful about saying that um, the intellectual discourse has to be alive, has to be valid to the person and the mind and the body of that person. And that person is an extension. Uh, it's not just <clears throat> trying to copy and produce a copied product, which is very common here, you know. You look at something, say, oh, let's yeah. do it, you know. And of course, it was very common in the 70s and 80s. Remember, you do a lot of... Um, modern dance uh, technique, Cunningham, Matt Graham, and all that. And then when we have a post-modern post work, we are a bit lost because uh, we don't really understand what really postmodern is. And we try to have our own postmodern, but it doesn't work. Hey everyone, if you're like me and prioritize online privacy and security, you're going to love NordVPN. Not only does NordVPN safeguard your internet connection and protect your personal data from hackers and snoopers, but it also offers an amazing advantage. Seamless access to geo-blocked content on platforms like Netflix. With NordVPN, you can browse the web with peace of mind and enjoy your favorite shows and movies from anywhere in the world. Plus, their user-friendly interface makes it easy for anyone to stay protected online. And here's the best part. NordVPN offers a 30-day money-back guarantee so you can try it risk-free. Trust me, I've been using this for two years now and it has totally changed my life. What's more, you can get the basic plan for as low as $5 a month. By signing up through the referral link below, you not only support your online peace of mind, but also help me and the continuity of this show. So, sign up for NordVPN today and let's serve smarter and safer together. 
I'm speaking with Dr. Mohammad Anis. For many years, he was a professor of ethnochoreology and ethnomusicology at the University of Malaya in Malaysia. He earned his master's in dance ethnology from the University of Hawaii and later on his PhD in Southeast Asian Studies and Musicology from the University of Michigan. For this week's special shout-outs, we hear from Silver Yi, and she says he posits dance in context to give audiences a bigger picture of how performing arts relates with reality. Despite the web of relationships, it is such a vast and complicated one, and I'm able to follow along on the Jason's well-organized topics and his clear articulation of thoughts. Highly recommended. Wow, thank you so much, Silver. Really appreciate it. And yes, I really hope that this podcast has been able to do that, not just for you, but also your circle of friends that we have back in Malaysia. Thank you once again for listening to this week's special shoutouts. Well, it's really funny, once again, like you brought up this idea that the academics have often been perceived as people sitting on this shrine, right? This intellectual superiority over normal, let's say, dancers, visceral practitioners. And I remember once I was in the Hong Kong Academy for Performing Arts and we invited Rianto, mm. uh, who's the one of the rehearsal directors of Akram Khan Dance Company, and we were doing a presentation and he started dancing and inviting people to come. And he started inviting one of the people on the panels. Actually, the moderator there was Joseph Victor Gonzalez. And Joseph mm-hmm. just candidly stood up, started dancing with him. And everybody was just shocked, you know, because he was often pigeonholed into this. Just an academic researcher, just a smart guy, nerdish, bookish person mm-hmm. in the office and not mm-hmm. having any prior dance training whatsoever and he just slayed that moment he nailed it and everyone was like put in their positions to go no it's okay we can have multiple you know domains of knowledge he used to be a performer just like you and has become a researcher so this kind of leads me into my next question which is this forever i think you know constant battle constant dichotomy between the practitioners and the academics right like one producing this corpus of knowledge, the other producing that form of knowledge, and then somehow it doesn't <laughs> seem to be able to come together. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I always advise uh, all my students, uh, those who I supervise for their works, I say, uh, give them just examples, you know. <clears throat> if one wants to be a linguist, right, you may have all the theories of linguistic, but your prominency in your study is often, or not often, but must be based upon the practice of the language. Now, the same goes to dance. Or we, we have, Music has less problem than dance. Dance has more problem than music. Uh, in the sense that uh, some people may say, I want to do dance research. And I said, why you do dance research? Uh, well, because I think I can do it as though it is a choice after so many others. You know, it's not, I, I, I want to hear someone say, I want to do dance because that's my passion. It's very rare you have that. 
You have people doing their graduate studies in dance because they have been dancing for the last 10 years. And they said to me, I have to do something with my life. Without a, deg a graduate degree in dance, I may not have this or that. I, I just, I mean, I look at them, I say, oh my God. You know, so you mean to tell me you wasted 10 years of your life? You could have done that 10 years ago. All right. This is the reason why you have the situation where I always say to them, if you want to be a scholar, the choice of your scholarship is either to be uh, visceral with the tradition that you deal with, meaning to say that like, you have to be able to practice the dialogue of the movement in many contexts, or are you just a narrator, a journalist, a writer? I said, uh, between the two, the latter has more in numbers than the former. Therefore, if, if you want to develop scholarship that people will say, oh my God, you know, he not only writes well and produced wonderful writings on the history and ethnography, but he really is a master. To me, is it, it's not difficult because if you have a passion for dancing, the passion for dancing begins with the mind and body, right? It is that mind and body that you become passionate about. And then you began to see, oh, maybe I can now dwell into something else to help me exploit and extend that passion. So this is when, um, if, if we have that, then probably we will not end up with armchair dance researchers who are writing about dance by copying templates of uh, analysis from other people, other group, and putting their cases into that template like cookie cutter. And then stand aloof and say, wow, I have achieved that. I then, there's no originality about it. There is no sense of belonging there. So here is when I would say to, I mean, like you, you talk about Joseph, which is true. I mean, he, he went to uh, train ballet very, you know, he wasn't young when he went to do ballet. He was with me in University of Malaya. Uh, learned, we taught dancing together. I taught, I taught him dance. And then after he's finished his, his first degree that he went. So, that passion is the kind of passion that I told more the young people would take you beyond your lifetime. And if we do not have that passion, then uh, the dichotomy between the, 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 the academics and the practitioners will remain. And that dichotomy has and will remain because it has, it, it remains all over the world. I'm more concerned about Malaysia. I'm more concerned about about if you if you if you walk then you have to talk and you talk you have to walk you know you have to yeah you have to do that and you just can't be and that's why you see for example um uh scholars now are younger academics who actually embrace themselves in classical eh, Bharatanatyam dance very very deep and being able to look into gender studies gender issues which was never done before 15 years ago so now the the new invented knowledge uh, about us. It is all about us. It's not about other people because we have to be able to explain us first before we start to explain about us to other people. Uh, we, we in Malaysia don't even know about the us in us. We know only about the we, the we in terms of who, what particular race are you, what religion are you of, and that kind of we. And we don't know, but we do talk about the us. So here is a station where I think 
I see, I see, I see a brighter future. If you ask me, I see a brighter future because the younger students doesn't have that chip on their shoulder. You know, they don't carry those those bad memories over. You know, they they are the millennials are really different. So my 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 bet is that yeah, the millennials are not really consuming just uh, local issues. You know, with the social media, they are really very global. And therefore, it makes things easier the time, uh, as opposed to the time when we only have typewriters, you know, to 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 do things on. So yes, I I my response to you is that yes, just like yourself, you know, I love to have mm, uh, Malaysians, you know, going all over the world, you know, go go as as much as you can, but don't don't go there and say I'm very happy I got a new space because that space will eventually be crowded. You see, so how do you make yourself mobile, and that therefore you are actually creating spaces that are waiting for spaces to be created by you, and this is the point I always tell our young scholars. You see, knowledge is always invented. Academics invent their academic uh, discourses. Scholars invent discourses to become valid. So the idea of reaching out and investigating for more meaning. Uh, based on curiosity that is valid and legit, uh, would sustain the discourses of uh, research and practice, and not the other way around. And that is really my opinion on this, you know, Jason. <laughs> Fantastic! Wow, I love that every bit of it. <laughs> um, I was very fortunate myself. I don't consider myself as a dance researcher, but I have. Some experience because coming from the psychology background, we had to do a lot of that. So I had publishing, you know, either as an assignment or even invited to a symposium or two. I was fortunate mm. enough to join the inaugural international mm. symposium for practices research that was held in the HK APA in 2017. So I co-authored a paper with my lecturer and his lecturer. So it was a triple intergenerational project, professor to lecturer to student and it's going to be published i think very soon as hkapa's first very own original journal itself and, and that's wonderful because the whole idea behind that project is practice as research and in the advent of practice as research i'm not sure but i would like to get your thoughts as to whether this is a viable tool for much deeper integration between the exegetical and also the visceral elements of dance, which you say have been at war even at times, you know, and calling each other out. Like, <laughs> do we need this? Do we need that? Can we, you know, what, what's the importance of both? And I think this could possibly be the solution. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, my, my response to this question is that first and foremost, uh, we as dancers or practitioners, we're the academician. Uh, exegesist. You know, we, we are we are we are trying to translate. We are trying to decipher. We are exegetes. So even if a person performs a repertoire, and you know, which is true even in music, that there could be many kinds of swan lake than just one swan lake because of the fact that it is directed by someone. The corpus is quite different. The chorus is structured, whether it's that kind of classical chorus or modern chorus. Techniques are there, but the whole presentation uh, has its very beautiful nuances. And that is when uh, the idea of the exegist 
is uh, omnipresent in the reconstruction and the performance. Now, therefore, it is not about um, the academics trying uh, to, to to translate things. No, no, no. It is the practitioners. I guess the practitioners. It's more difficult for the practitioners to translate it than the academics because the academics have already many uh, previous templates or existing templates that they could use. You know, uh, as I said, there are there are cookie cutters. You know, you put your dough there and you you produce it, and then you have publication, right? And you get your 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 credits for that. I guess the most difficult one would be um, how would a practitioner uh, work on translating that very layered stuff which in his or her mind is going either linear or whether it's going horizontal. I mean, normally the mind doesn't talk about the merging of the vertical and the linearity. It's always either narrative discourses or abstractive discourses. And that's our fault also because we keep wanting to say, oh, are you are you producing a, a a narrative or are you producing an abstractive? As though the both of both of both of it can't work together, and, and there's a problem here. I mean, why would lean narrative be so linear and abstractive be so so you know different from that? You know, because that's when I guess when you talk about uh, practice as research, the need is there all the time. I think practice as research is 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 very needed now than than ever before. Uh, because, um, as I said, you know, we have the larger corpus of performers than the larger corpus of academician. Okay, now academics they're short date very early in their life. You didn't produce, they go off. If you become a, a, a university academician, you don't publish, you don't do doing that, and you have you're off the tenure. They don't allow you to remain that, right? So that person will keep on wanting to create the numbers, you know, and create the volumes and be recognized, be cited. What about the practitioners, how often are they cited? How often they are given that credit, you know? And uh, the reason being is because of the fact that unless and until we we establish um, the, the respect for and the appreciation of practice as research in its truest sense, truest sense here also is really uh, am ambiguous because true it could be now, but true may not be in the future. So truth itself is is ambiguous it moves according to so when when you you look at it so my question is here if you're talking about the integration of the um and the uh, visceral i i would say you know uh the exegetical is an ever-present thing uh, whether it is on the context on the context of viscerality of the physics or you're talking about the viscerality of the mind. I mean, those are, are corpus, right? So I don't think there is a gap. But what I think there is, is the absence of uh, the knowledge and the, the, the sense of its being together. So unless you, you put practice as research at the pedestal, where because when you look at practice as research, it, the investigation is about the practices towards the creation of a practice. I mean, that's basically yeah. what it is, right? So, uh, yeah, it's not about 
looking at something, copying, and say you can't get that through. So there's a lot of intellectual discourse that's going in. In university programs, your dossier has to really be strong enough to be able to put all that we know. But how far does it go into public? That is the question. And if you keep it just being archived at the universities and colleges, then we will become very monasterial in the sense we are not getting the public getting it right. So it is very important. For example, I would like to see when they have performances today and at the end of the performance, you have the, um, the dialogue. I love that. Because that is so fresh, you know, because you just seen something, we have a chance to talk about it for 15, 20 minutes, you know. That added moment of time really ruptures everything of the complacency and of the satisfaction that was what you got from the ephemerality of that period, you know. And many artists are scared of that. They, they, they are not willing. They have the excuse, oh, I'm tired. I'm so exhausted. I can't. I say, you don't have to. You can lie down. <laughs> You know, on the floor, if you wish, you know, because all we need is uh, let's talk about it. That is a two-way traffic because you will get a wonderful critical discourse right there for 15 minutes. And then you will have uh, the audience, of course, in Malaysia, you know, because that's a typical of Malaysian. Uh, they, they, they hesitate to ask questions. They want to, they don't want to lose face or have someone lose face. You know, this is the typical Asian way of doing things. And I said, never mind, you know, let's, let, let's have an interlocutor. Who, who interlocuted, interlocuted, a person who just bring in the rupturing of that uh, in a very conducive way. And when we have this more often, then the audience doesn't expect to pay a ticket to see the performance and come back out of the theater and get drunk before they go to bed. You know, so it, it is, it, you have to have that impact. Yeah. And, and the more I see this happening, the, 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 the more satisfying it is. So if you're talking about whether, uh, how to integrate it, the integration happens there and then that, you know, when you have practice um, as research, the willingness and openness to allow discourses to come in at that moment of ruptures is more crucial than afterthought. You know, the afterthought is irrelevant. Uh, that to me, perhaps is, is uh, the way, it's going that way, but we have to encourage more of it. We have to have people who can articulate uh, their work by words uh, rather than articulate by this movement. Uh, that's how I feel about it. Hey you! Yeah, you there who's listening so intently to my voice right now. Well, I need a favor and you're just the perfect solution. We are planning to experiment a little by producing one, if not two, very special Q&A episodes from February onwards where we gather and respond to all of your burning curiosities regarding our journey so far. You can ask anything from what it's like to be a podcaster, you can ask what it's like to have breakfast, dinner and lunch all at the same time. Just get creative, it's going to be cool. Head on over to our website at backgrounddancer.com and click the microphone widget. Yeah, that cute little microphone pop-up button at the bottom right-hand corner to record your voice. Thanks again and hear from you soon. So that also brings up another memory of mine or in opinion or basically just my own preference when i go to performances i particularly choose those that 
have already advertised a post-show or pre-show even nowadays talk that's interwoven within the production itself. So the production doesn't start with the performance, it starts with the pre-show talk and then it doesn't end after the performance, it ends with the post-show talk, you know, and that allows the audience to be educated, to 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 educate one another on this entire very democratized platform <laughs> for uh, what's that bouncing off ideas, right? To there's an intellectual almost kind of like back in the the, the medieval ages, going to the temple to to speak, <laughs> kind yeah. of you know that kind of environment. So that, that that's wonderful to wind back the clock a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about your own personal trajectory right now with Nusantara, because. For a very long time, I think people have associated you with the University of Malaya. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that yeah. has you spend the bulk of your time there, and now you've kind of branched off into this even more specific, let's say, niche of your work, which is News Park. In short, so very quickly, maybe give the audience a little overview of what the project is about, what the mission and the vision is. Okay, uh, it it began with a very selfish intention. <laughs> because you see, when I when when I was uh, I had about maybe less than ten years of service in university, I began to think out loud in my head. I said, "Oh my God, where am I going to put all these books that I have collected? Uh, where am I going to put all these documents I have? You know, um, I, I can't stop because that's my passion. I mean." If I start, if I stop writing or researching or doing what I love, you know, you might as well get me a coffin ready, you know, because <laughs> I'll go. I mean, that's how it is, you know. I said this is what my passion is, you know. So, I have to have an audience, an audience that would be able to relate to me, uh, an audience that is dialogical, an audience that is not passive. So, a dialogical audience would be the audience who will read and respond to the work I do and uh, the things that we offer. So what do we do? What what can we do? So I met a couple of colleagues who were about to retire too, and we start talking about this. And uh, a group of us decided to say, let's let's form this um, this uh, new organization, uh, registered it as a legit company, and then I will manage it because I'm always around here, and there are the board members, and then we we went through all the processes, and the reason is is for is purely for R and D, really. So it's very selfish, you know. It's R and D. Um, how do we continue publication publishing? How do we continue researching? How do we get grants to continue working in spite of we not being academics at the, uh, specific universities, though we can still be academics at many other universities. I'm currently in Sunway University. I'm also with several other places I work. I don't go full time. I work as adjunct professor because I need my space. You know, I do. I give my service, but I need my space. So that's how you began. But eventually, what happened was very interestingly. Uh, it this this reservoir that we created had had patrons coming in. We have kids from the uh, art school coming in uh, to read stuff. We have teachers who were teaching the art school. We had no resources would come in. We have university students. We have even the academics who didn't have this collection come in. I said, come in, and that began sort of a new stream which is so interesting because it was not really what we expected, okay? And then eventually we have requests from universities to have um, industrial student training. And that's how we went. And we, then we created our own dance company. Uh, we call it NDC, Nuspark Dance Company, that has been invited to perform abroad. So we do that 
And what we do is we, I would, I would, I would invent, uh, I would bring uh, trainee students into the company and we bring our resident choreographer or they themselves and look at their work and help them, mentor them to get their work presented outside or in the country. And then we start to do more publication and we receive grants. So it's so interesting that, you know, that I think uh, right now uh, I'm quite happy to say that when you mention NUSPAC, people know what it is. And then therefore, I guess it is, it is something that has evolved, has evolved and I would like it to continue. I'm telling the younger people here in this room who's listening to me saying, you know, you are the guys, you to carry on this mm. because, uh, you know, uh, it is kind of idea of its continuum. Uh, which is basically R&D, but now become R&D and practice and practice become grant giving, grant giving becomes training, mentoring, which is fantastic. So that's how it is. In brief, that's what NUSPAC is. Now, my generation would continue to associate you with University of Malaya for sure, but hopefully the next generation that is already merging and quickly catching up, right? Like they would associate you with Newspark instead and have literally zero to no idea of your existence or your pre-existence in UM, which I think yeah. is a huge part of your life, a very important segue into your current work at Newspark. So with that being said, I would love to just, just shift everything away from the work-related academic perspective of this conversation and direct the next few questions to you personally, as we slowly wrap this episode up, being somebody who has been part of this industry for such a long time, yeah, the number of faces you've met, number of books you've read and written, and the number of performances you've been a part of, when it all comes to an end, when you finally retire, at least at this level, you can do so at home and you'll probably continue doing so as you already mentioned, when you finally officially retire as the researcher, as a, as, a, as a person who's at this robust level, what do you wish for people to say or think about you then? Okay, I, um, I have nothing to... Really, I have nothing to say about it because uh, I don't want to be totemic in that way. I just want people to be able to continue living that experience of uh, reading, writing, practicing. So if, if they knew me in UM, that's good. If they don't know me in UM, they, knew, they now know me in Nuspark or in Sunway University or in University of Technology Patrona. It is perfectly fine with me. But I guess what is crucial for me is that they will be able to at least read the things that I have produced and uh, be able to associate that with the memory of that kind of rigor of research and writing. That would be the, 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 the one that I would expect, but I don't really, I don't dream of that. Um, the, uh, somehow your question seemed to ask uh, uh, the, the, the question of iconosity, you know, or the iconosity mm. of, that, of that contribution. I, I don't think uh, I, I, I know when, when we talk about texts that we read today, um, of the works that, for example, was written by Jean Cossinet in 1930s about, about mind putri, about Clantani's work written by a French researcher. You know, today when you read it, half of what was written has not, is no longer present mm. in, in, the performing, in the performance of it. Half of it is, is absent. 
So then this is a question, how come, how, what, is it true? Is it what? It's not a question of truth. It's a question of the writing of that moment, 1930s. 1930s, 1940s, that was how it was. Now, had it not been because of those texts, would you know that there was this structure before? It's not a question of recreating it. It's a question of knowing it. So when we move on, because everything we do is always invented. I mean, by, by human nature, we will never be happy to have not gotten the identity that we say is me and not that. That that is the development of the me. So uh, it would, as, a, as a result of that, my answer is very clear. I mean, I would be very happy, uh, you know, in the afterlife, if I may say that, uh, that uh, people are saying, oh my God, this particular XY was very different in 1970s uh, than the now, which is maybe 30, 45. I don't know. But those are the kind of things that I... I feel very romantically linked, mm. but not iconic. Right. <laughs> I, I don't know whether, but it is really, it's hard to answer that <laughs> question, but I say, you know, case, case sera, sera, you know, there are stuff that you can look mm. at, you know, I have my idol, I, I, people who I respect, you know, authors that I love, I read again and again and again and again, and um, they are not present there. I mean, I go to Pacific Islands, you know, I've read about the Polynesians, I've read about the music and dancing, and then, then it's no longer there, you know, but uh, it's nice that you know. You know it was there before, yeah? Oh, thank you for that. My final question is also a very experimental one and actually a very simple one. To you personally, what do you think makes a dancer? Hmm. Huh. There is a word in Arabic. It's used also in Malay. I don't know whether you're familiar. I think you're familiar. The word in Arabic is kalb. The Malay word is kalbu. Kalb or kalbu is translated as the heart. You know, from the Sufis, the Sufis say this, that the beloved, the beloved means you're looking at God as the beloved, you know, emanates from the heart. So whatever you do physically is because of the heart. You do not do the physical and then revert to the heart. So a dancer that makes a dancer a dancer, a great dancer, or whatever dancer you want to be, a dancer academic, is because of the heart. The heart. You have to be sincere about it. You cannot, be, you cannot pretend because life is too short to pretend. And it is that particular focus on the truth, what you are. It, the, mind, the mind works wonders, but the mind doesn't tame itself without the heart. It is that emotiveness, the feel, or in Indic, rasa, very difficult to translate, is that senses, because we are sensorious here. It is the sensory that makes a churn, the grey matter, to give us all the signals. So the dancing from the grey matter comes from the signals of the heart, right? I'm trying to be simple here, but uh, that's how I feel. I mean, that's why I always, <laughs> I always go to my people, my dancers or people. I, I hug the person and I always touch the person somewhere here. Thank you so much. It is my way of saying that. Thank you for sharing your heart. I don't say the mind, you know. Mm. I, I think that's how it is. Well, I have 
benefited very selfishly to quote you from this dialogue itself, but I can guarantee you that the listeners have learned just as much, if not even more, from your knowledge. So thank you once again, uh, Dr. Anis, for your humility, for your generosity, for your multiplicity of thought of both the brain and the heart. And it's one way to bring that together very well. And uh, I really appreciate the fact that you've taken the time to do this with me. So once again, thank you so, so much for being on The Background Dancer. Well, thank you for having me here. I really enjoyed this session. And I hope, you know, take with a pinch of salt, whatever I say, you know, you come very, I can be very emotional also, but I really have a, I've had a great time with you, Jason. And thank you for having me here today. My guest today has been Dr. Mohammad Anis, adjunct professor at the Sunway University and managing director of the Nusantara Performing Arts Research Center. He pioneered the study of Zapin, dance and music in Southeast Asia, which is one of the foremost traditional art forms within the region and himself has already published more than 20 books to date. Presently, he is focused on reviving another traditional art form called Ronggeng, which is a social dance from the 50s and 60s. What are your thoughts on academic research in dance education? Be sure to reach out to me and let me know through all the social links down in the show notes below. If you think we deserve it, do also consider leaving us a 5-star review because we read out each and every one of them. Yes, we actually do. Just go back and check. (laughs) Anyways, in our next episode, we explore dance education from the lens of freelance artists and educators working and operating within the global festival slash workshop circuit. Who would that be? Well, stay tuned to find out. Once again, thank you so, so much for your time and attention, and I'll see you in the next one. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe, comment, and leave a review on your designated podcast and social media platforms. If you found this interesting or helpful, feel free to share with members of your community so that they too may connect with us in our quest to foreground dance in the background. I'm Jason Yup of The Background Dancer, and as always, catch you next time. If you're listening to this, you are most definitely a dance enthusiast, maybe even one for dance science. Well, why not join the International Association for Dance Medicine and Science, or IADAMS for short, and become part of a global community dedicated to supporting dancers and performers worldwide. With active members from over 50 countries, including experts in dance, medicine, and science, iAdams provides a diverse network of support and resources. As a member, you'll gain access to exclusive benefits such as discounts to year-round events, their vast collection of e-learning opportunities, and a subscription to the Journal of Dance, Medicine and Science, amongst other incredible and unique offers. Join the mission for better outcomes and apply for an iAdams membership today. Click the link in the descriptions below for more info.